Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Phillies Backstage. I'm Tom Burgoyne, joined by John Brazier. And John, uh, oh, we love hearing Skip you know, with our theme song. And our next guest knows Skip Denenberg very well. And again, he's one of our favorite guys, right, John? One, we say it all the time, but this is really one of our favorite guys. Uh, we've known Jonesy since, uh, I guess, really, when it was mo- mostly post-playing career, I guess. Uh, let's bring him up right away. Jonesy, Keith Jones, what's up, buddy? It's all good, fellas. It's good to catch up with you guys, too. I've, I've known you guys before the Corn Boy days. Yeah, that's right. Well, we're going to be talking about Corn Boy at some point because that was a huge promotion at the Phillies games way back when. Uh, we will Huge not, promotion. Jonesy, we will not be going into the particulars of our Daily News Live uh, <laughs> show to promote Corn Boy because that went off the rails, and uh, I don't think that's made for our family audience. <laughs> Probably a good idea, Johnny. You always had great judgment. That's why you've always been the director of my fun and game. <laughs> there you have it. Uh, well, uh, appreciate you joining us, uh, Keith. Um, you know, it's fun. You're, you're busy, right? I mean, this new gig at TNT, John and I were just talking about it. You're like the Greg Murphy of uh, hockey now. You're the guy who you, you get to be down on the glass between the benches now, huh? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a little bit different. The, the great thing about TNT is they allow you to do whatever you want to do. There is not a lot of uh, instruction on how they want you to present uh, the game to them because they're new to hockey. So it's been pretty cool, actually. There's even moments where they'll tell me, you know, if you don't feel like being down there on any particular night, just go upstairs and do the game from up there. So it's a, there's a lot of flexibility, and you're not really tied in to any one type of format, which is a pretty cool thing to be a part of. Well, it's also got to be cool being right down there. You can hear what the coaches are saying to the players. You can hear the smack talk, although it's probably not as big as the smack talk you were doing back in your playing days. Uh, but, and you can see what the refs are saying when they're coming over, right? I mean, you, you, got, you can smell their nasty equipment, right? So you're right in the middle of it. So I, I will tell you this, John. All of the things you mentioned you would think would be, you know, stuff I could provide great insight on. The equipment doesn't stink like it used to, and I can uh, vouch for that. The first NHL game I ever went to, I sat behind the Washington Capitals bench at Maple Leaf Gardens. They had 
my buddy and I, his parents had four seats. Their two were up above us. And the other two that we got to sit in were right behind the bench. And the language was incredibly bad. We were both about 10 years old. And these guys were absolute animals, and they stunk. That's the one thing I <laughs> took away from it was, man, does that equipment ever smell? So after the second period, we switched with the parents, and the plan was we were supposed to go down to the third period to watch the end of the game. And after his parents sat in those seats and listened to the dialogue in the second period, they would not allow us <laughs> to go back down guys aren't going to back. watch yeah. the third period. That's great. So now – it's, it's a lot different now. Like the players, there is conversations and there is, you know, some things that you can really gain as far as what's going to happen maybe on the next couple of shifts so when players are starting to get pretty upset with each other. But they're way different than we were even when I played. Uh, it was a lot more conversation that took place. So I do think the position that I'm in, and that's been a spot that's been used over the last, 15 years or so has taken away from some of the conversations that took place on the ice because when we played, it was quite often those conversations led to altercations right. uh, in the, in the following shifts, but that's all changed now. It's a, it's a much different game than uh, from that perspective than it was when I played. Yeah. So you're saying that there's not as much smack talk because you're like, you're there or a, uh, an announcer is there. Yeah. Or, yeah is that right? Think, yeah. Huh. I think it's a more, and this is a positive, I think that it's a more socially conscious league than ever before. And I, I just think that, you know, some of the stuff that was said, you know, was just caused a lot, a lot of anger. And I think that's just changing. I think it's changing. A lot of it, I'm sure, has to do with the accessibility of microphones, technology, and all the rest of the things that are uh, in our world today. And I, I do think the players are just more, cognizant of um, their surroundings and making sure that they uh, keep it, uh, you know, keep it within the, the rules of the world. Well, Jonesy, let's talk about your career. We've, we've, you know, I've, I obviously have heard your story uh, off the air and many times, but I think it's a great story that, you know, you grew up in Brantford, uh, Ontario, uh, home of Wayne Gretzky, right? So, yep. uh, I mean, when you were playing as a kid, Gretzky, I guess, was what, like four or five years older than you were? So you probably knew about him, but he, when he was playing, he was playing with guys that are like three years older, right? So, I mean, he was, I'm sure, revered at a young age in that area. Yeah, the, the first time I watched uh, Wayne play, he had actually kind of been chased out of Brantford because he was so much better than the other kids, there was actually a lot of parents that uh, were overly envious of how great he was and, you know, felt like their little Johnny should have been better or should have got the puck from him or, you know, he, he was just so dominant that uh, he left a lot of players in his dust and a lot of parents didn't appreciate that. So, you know how parents can be about sports. So I, I don't think that it was um, – necessarily Wayne wanting to leave. I just think he had to and because he was so advanced. So he came back playing for a team out of Toronto, uh, playing in a tournament in Brantford. And that was the first time I ever got to watch him play live. I was barely old enough to see over the board. Hmm. And the, the, the arena he played in was not one with, uh, you know, a big stands uh, that you would sit in. You had everyone just crowded around the uh, outdoor, uh, the outside of the board. And you kind of looked over the boards, and if there was glass there, you you pounded on the glass as, as, as a way of cheering for the team that was playing. 
But that's the first time I ever watched him play, and I was just like, holy cow, this guy is unbelievable. I bet he was probably 14 at that time. Mm. And would have been playing against 17-year-olds, and nobody could come near him. So that, that was my first introduction to Wayne, and then he quickly, from 14 to 17, made unbelievable leaps and gains as far as where he was headed and quickly was into the uh, WHA and then the NHL after that. Yeah, and I'm always interested in, in, a, in players, whatever sport it is, their journey to get to that pro level. And and you told me several times that, you know, you had talent, obviously, but it was there was guys you played with growing up that had phenomenal talent, but they just didn't have the will, or maybe not the breaks, but they didn't have the will to, to be that NHL player. And for you yourself, you know, you were you know cut from junior B, so you went down to junior, junior C when you're in your teens, and then you get a break, go up to junior B, Right, and then next thing you know, someone's watch. There, someone was watching somebody on your team, right? And it was someone from the Capitals, I believe, yeah. a scout, right? So, so talk about yeah. the breaks that you need, or that you actually got, you know, to get to where you were. Yeah, I, I always tell young people that you have to be present if you're going to get those breaks. So you can't quit. So as much as you might not be the best at any particular time, you don't have to be the best to you know make a living in a sport. You just have to be you know, a good enough player that you can make other players better and fit into a team concept. And, um, you know, you if you're around, you might get that break. If you quit, you're not going to get it. So I just kept playing. And no matter what the level was, if I was cut from a team, I went down and played the lower level. Uh, and I played because I loved to play. I also loved, you know, being part of a team and being, you know, in the mix of the locker room and, and all the fun things that, go with not just the game itself but what you do you know between periods what you do after games what you're doing at school all the things that uh, kind of make the whole experience great but when I was cut from junior B the first time I went and played junior C for two years as a 17 and 18 year old and got you know a lot better at it I grew which was obviously a major reason I was not I was a late bloomer physically which um, was a big reason why I kind of snuck up on everybody but I also just love to play. And so when an opportunity came to try back out for Junior B uh, following that second season in Junior C, I jumped at it, wasn't sure if I'd make the team, kind of made it on the last day of the cuts. And I, I can remember telling my dad out for lunch in Niagara Falls, uh, saying, you know, this is great. I can tell my kids I, I made it to Junior B hockey. And um, that, that year went extremely well. I played with players that were better, uh, more skilled than guys I had played with before and caught up really quickly and really excelled. And I played with a guy named Gilbert Dion that actually played briefly with the Flyers. He was part of the John LeClaire deal hmm. and Eric Desjardins uh, when Mark Recchi was traded to Montreal. Uh, the brother of Marcel Dion, uh, who was a Hall of Fame player for the LA Kings, but about 18 years younger than Marcel. Hmm. Everyone thought it was his son, but it was his brother. And a lot of scouts came to watch Gilbert play. And because he was 14 and I was just turning 19. Um, so that's, and then the Washington Capitals kind of talked to our coach and he said, hey, the Capitals want to talk to you after the game. I thought he was joking. Uh, and he says, no, they really actually want to talk to you. So I was like, all right. So I talked to him after the game, and I was purely a fan of the NHL as a 19-year-old. 
a hockey player, but not ever thinking I was going to play on the ice. I went to Maple Leaf Gardens and watched games as a fan with having no thought in my mind at that point in my life that I was ever going to play on the same surface that all the guys I was watching play and appreciating uh, would get that. I would get that opportunity. So after talking to the scouts and, you know, continuing on playing my season, no guarantees that I would be drafted. I uh, was fortunate enough to be drafted that summer and then kind of had a lot more things uh, fall into place that looking back on it without that junior B opportunity, I, I never would have gotten to where I was able to get to. You know, you, it, of course, Jones, you have to have a, a, a level of talent to make it to the NHL and, and what you accomplished, as John said, uh, but you've always been very self-effacing about your game. Do you like the term mucker and grinder? Do, do you consider yourself you were a mucker and grinder? And I asked that too in, you know, this is a Phillies podcast. We have uh, our favorite player, John, right, is uh, Larry Boa, you know, and, and he was always that guy who had said, hey, I didn't have as much talent as everybody else, but he outworked a lot of people. He had a you know, borderline Hall of Fame uh, career. And, uh, you know, in terms of a baseball player, he was a mucker and a grinder. And a know? chirper. And a chirper. <laughs> but is that, is that yeah. how you see yourself and you like that term, Jonesy? Like, if you're, somebody calls you a mucker, oh, Jonesy was a mucker and a grinder. Yeah. You like that? Part, part of the uh, advantage that you have is being able to recognize what you need to be in order to make it. Uh, there's a lot of superstar talents around. And as long as you know you're not one of them, then you can kind of map out your path on how you're going to make it. Hmm. Uh, you don't have to say anything about it. You can let other people say it. But you need to have an idea that, number one, you're not as good as the guy that you might be playing beside. Number two, your job is to make him better. And your job is to stay. Your job is to become a relevant uh, part of the personnel of whatever sport team, sporting team you're involved in. And that's probably the greatest skill that I had. So I wasn't necessarily a mucker and grinder when I got started. I was a really skilled player as a young guy and was always the best player on my team up until about the age of 10. And then when everybody grew past me, I needed to reinvent myself and find my way to say, hey, I'm here and I want to stay here and I want to keep playing and I want to be a big part of your team. So the mucker and grinder is a perfect description, but it really was not who I was internally. It's who I became uh, in order to open up more doors and get more opportunities uh, to survive. And in, in all honesty, guys, I was telling this to someone the other day, I had never had a fight in my life until I played for the Washington Capitals. Hmm. I'd never had a fight in high school, public school. I always had other people that would step in and fight for me. I was lucky. I had tough friends. And uh, if I, you know, verbally got underneath somebody's skin, I had somebody that would just step in in the nick of time before I got uh, beat up or had to find a way to survive. But I had not had a fight until I stepped on the ice in Washington. And I looked around the locker room and I said, you know what? They have a need for this. It wasn't a heavyweight. It was a middleweight that could stir the pot. And if I did that, I would probably get an extended look. And if I did well enough during those extended looks, I might be able to stay. And I didn't know until I played my first game in the NHL that I would ever play a game in the NHL. And that's kind of the way I approached every day when I uh, put my skates on was just, I was uh, 
humble, but also uh, very willing to find a way to make it work. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Well, Jones, you mentioned fighting. There's a clip where they actually showed you, and God bless you for letting the TNT show it, but you were in the studio, and I guess they pulled up a clip of you, and it was a Richie, Richie Pilon. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you were gracious enough to say, yeah, go ahead and roll the tape, because, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, your maybe your best fight, but you said something in that, Jones. And he, didn't, he didn't know he was left-handed? Yeah, didn't, <laughs> you didn't know the guy was le- left-handed. So, do, like, the hockey players, like, do they have to do some research and see if a guy's a southpaw or not, if he knows he's going to fight him? Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> the guys that are the regular fighters, especially back when it was more regular and when I was playing, knew everything about the uh, the opposition tough guys huh. that they may have to fight. And before every game, you look through the game sheet and you kind of looked and counted how many they had looked in your own locker room and figured where you were on the list of guys to fight and kind of said, all right, well, that's who I'm going to match up with tonight. And <laughs> luckily I had guys like Baruby on my team that would match up with the big boys on the other team. And eventually you got down to the middleweights where you weren't necessarily going to get killed. And once in a while you got stuck with a Richie Pilon by mistake because you didn't do enough homework and you didn't know that uh, the guy was tough as nails. He wore a visor is the reason that it threw me off. And I didn't realize he wore it because he had an eye injury. A lot of times back in those days, if you wore a visor, you weren't, you were considered to not be tough enough. Of course, right. it's ridiculous when you look at it, right? But uh, Richie Pilon was not one of those guys. He was uh, an experienced fighter out of the Western Hockey League that I knew nothing about. But I found out a lot about him after that. <laughs> I never went near him again the rest of my career. Hey, Jonesy, so I've heard, obviously, many stories uh, over beers with you. Uh, and one of my favorites is, uh, you know, you never played for the Flyers, but Al Iafredi, uh you and him were, were roommates and were tight. Tell the story about how he was very sensitive about his hairline and when he got, <laughs> when he got knocked out on the ice. Yeah, we were playing against the Devils, and Al would wear his uh, – Helmet, he's, obviously now he's bald, and I saw him a picture of him the other day, and he was very proud to be. But at that time, he was hanging on to a few strands, and he uh, would always wear his helmet during the national anthem. And it was always peculiar, right, because everyone takes off their – or used to take off their helmets back in those days. I don't know if they do anymore, but they used to. And uh, he would always be very conscientious of it, but he got hit by – Scott Stevens against the Devils, and the Devils had this long bench that actually the end of it extended into the uh, their defensive blue line or in past the blue line. So it, it kind of went from the red line all the way down past the blue line, and the end was on the other side. So he got up onto the top of the boards, and Stevens kind of rode him down and then crushed him into the turnbuckle at the end, and Al helmet went flying off and we're all looking wondering how he's going to handle this so he basically crawled on all fours uh to his helmet recovered his helmet put it on his head and then collapsed (laughs) (laughs) so it's just uh i always laughed about that every time i thought of it and that that was al he was 
he was one of the incredible characters of the game that uh, was a great teammate and, you know, went above and beyond. He was making a few more bucks than most of us in those days. And he took all the young guys with him to dinner all the time and would always take care of the bill and uh, really cared about the guys that he played with. So I've always appreciated him as a teammate. I'm glad he's doing well after in his post-playing career. Yeah, and another story that I remember is uh, you when you were with the Capitals, uh, the GM was Dave Poyle, right? Um, yeah. And you went, you 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 fired your agent, and you represented yourself, and you uh, came into the negotiation with t-shirt, flip flops, and a briefcase that had absolutely nothing in the briefcase, right? <laughs> yeah, we just uh, we just had David on TNT during the uh, Nashville Dallas game, going back. I guess it'd be about two weeks now. And he came on the air for the start of the third period. And we told that story and uh, he was laughing so hard about it. He, he didn't know until we had kind of refreshed his memory on it, that I had an empty briefcase because I kept <laughs> opening it, pretending that I had a list of players and <laughs> comparables within my briefcase. Right. And we had, we had many good meetings together, but yeah, that's, that's a true story. And then um, eventually I went with Steve Mountain, who's, my agent for uh, WIP when I'm doing radio work there with Angelo and Al and Rhea. So I uh, still have uh, Steve now. And I was glad that Dave Poulin called me about four weeks after I met with David and asked me over the phone. When I was back in Brantford. He goes, do you have an agent yet? <laughs> and I said, no. And he goes, well, how's it going? I go, not well. I haven't talked to David since I left He's, uh, a month ago. And he goes, well, you better get uh, an agent. I said, okay, who you got? He said, Steve Mountain. I said, okay. I never met with him uh, until about a year later, and he was the guy that did the contract probably two weeks after I talked to Pooley, but I still had never met the guy in person. So Steve just shows Mount, you he, the, was, the, he was big, the too. Process. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, he was a, a major agent back then. You landed a big one right there with Steve Mountain. Well, he was major in Philly, that's for sure, and he had the okay. Hooters, and yeah. you know he did a lot of different things around there, Ron Hextall and Rick Sock and Craig Berube, who he still has now and still represents those guys. So he's had a nice career. Well, you get traded to the uh, devil, or not to the devil, to the to Colorado, right? And then you get traded from Colorado to Philadelphia. And the story was that you, you knew the trade, and and everyone, and then you went to the GM and said, am I getting traded? Because I guess you read it somewhere. And they're like, no, because obviously they're, at that, that time, they're going through your physicals, right? And then yeah. wasn't it Patrick Wall was like, Jonesy, do you want to get traded, <laughs> right? Yep. No, no. I was. I read it in the newspaper on the way into practice that in Colorado that I was traded uh, to the Flyers. It was a little small corner of the sports page. You know when they used to put those late yeah. edition news stories in, and it said Keith Jones has been traded to the Flyers for Sean Podine. And I thought a couple things. One, I thought, man, it was my career going downhill. And two, I've been, uh, you know, I got to go into practice here, and what do I do? So I walked in holding the newspaper and I said, hey, guys, I've been uh, I've been traded. And they go, no, you haven't. I said, yeah, it's right here in the paper. Look at it. So I was showing all the guys on the team walking around the room, showing the guys in the training room. And everyone keeps saying, no, you haven't been traded. It's not, it's not true. You haven't been traded. So after an hour and a half, I started putting my equipment on for practice, even though I knew by this newspaper article I was no longer a member of the team. And finally, the assistant to the GM came down, Johnny Martineau in uh, Colorado. And he goes, 
Pierre Lacroix wants to see you upstairs. And I looked at Patrick, who was sitting beside me, and I said, I told you <laughs> I was getting traded. And he had been asking me, well, why do you want to be traded? I said, Patrick, I don't want to be traded. Yeah, yeah. I'm being traded. So anyway, that was it. I walked up, and Pierre said, Bobby Clark wants to talk to you on the other line there. And I said, okay, great. So I got on the phone, and it's the first time I ever spoke to Bobby Clark. Obviously, idolized him as a young hockey player from Canada. Knew all of the great things that he had done with the Flyers. And he said, uh, Jonesy, we don't need you tonight. They're playing the Florida Panthers, he says. But we need you tomorrow. We're playing the New Jersey Devils. And I said, Sparky, you might want to rethink that. Have you ever looked at my stats against the Devils? <laughs> and he's like, what do you mean? I go, take a look at it. I had no, I had no goals in 23 career games against Marty Brodeur. And uh, I said, I think you yeah, better let me wait a couple more days. I want to make a good impression. He just started laughing. He said, get in here. And I threw through the, uh, through the night into Philly. I remember looking down at the lights of the city as I was the plane was landing, wondering, I wonder what this adventure is going to be like. Mm. So uh, when looking back on that, it's, um, it turned out to be, you know, the best place to land for me. And I was really uh, lucky to do that. And I ended up playing the Devils that next night. And we beat them 6-1. to one. I think I had a goal in the fifth in the third period, uh, playing with Lindros and LeClaire and get off to a great start with the Flyers. And I kind of propelled me into doing what I'm doing today. Yeah, and Jonesy, I mean, that was 1998. Uh, you're joining a Flyers team, had a lot of talent. It was the Lindros, LeClaire years. Uh, are you surprised you guys never uh, won the Cup with that, with that team? Yeah, you know, we had the great run in 2000 when, yeah. when Eric missed a lot of the time, and we did have a great team. Looking back on it, we have a lot of guys that went on to be coaches in the NHL uh, that have done really great things. Luke Richardson still in the coaching in- industry. Uh, Rod Brindamore is one of the best in the game. Craig Berube, one of the best in the game. Rick Tockett, one of the best in the game. Mark Recchi is still coaching as well. I think he's an assistant with the Devils now. Uh, we had a list of guys that uh, did some incredible things and were great teammates. Uh, Brian Boucher still you know, involved in television. There's a lot of guys that have had very successful post-playing careers that were also still doing great things on the ice. Keith Primo comes to mind. He was there at the same time. Uh, it was a it was a fabulous um, experience, but one of the more disappointing things was blowing the three one lead against the Devils in the conference finals. We were one away from getting to the final, which would have been my first chance at winning the cup. The Devils came back, beat us, and eventually won the Stanley Cup as well. So uh, that so that was a little bittersweet, but that was my last ever playoff experience. And then I retired shortly after that at the start of the next season. So. If there's anything that I wish I had, it would be that, but uh, still have plenty of great memories. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. And then you knew you were, when you were coming to Philadelphia, obviously you knew Bobby Clark, so that's cool. You talked to Bobby. You know, that whole Broad Street Bullies thing, too. Did you, uh, first of all, when you were young, you know, did you watch those guys? Uh, what you think of the Broad Street Bullies? And then the, my other question there, too, is, 
you know, I know when we were getting good in 2006 with the Jimmy Rollins, Ryan Howard, Chase Utley guys, you know, they would say, you know what, they were tired of everybody talking about the 93 team. They love those guys, you know, love those players. But it was like, no, now it's time for, to, for us to write our own chapter. Uh, first of all, how well did you know the Broad Street Bullies kind of growing up? But also, was that team ready to kind of write their own chapter and, and ready to kind of make their mark? I knew, I knew the Broad Street Bullies really well. I had uh, loved watching them play because they were so entertaining. You didn't want to turn the channel anytime you had an opportunity to watch them. They had so many great players. I loved Bob DeHound Kelly. That was one of my favorite players to watch. I'm so happy he's still involved with the Flyers and all the great things he does. But that was a team that I really enjoyed watching, the, the way that they had a list of tough guys that would, you know, pummel the other team when necessary, but they had talent around those guys. One of my favorite teams to watch as a kid. So I I don't think it was about replacing them, to be honest with you. It was trying to continue on their legacy. And because Bobby Clark was still such a big part of our team, being the general manager, you felt like there was an, an extension of those teams as well. And you just wanted to make the city proud. You had lots of, uh, video that you would you know come across of the parade and you just wanted to do it again for the fans of philadelphia so i I don't think it was about separating ourselves to be honest with you i think it was trying to be uh, as close as we could be to what those guys brought to the city and unfortunately we fell a little bit short now, Jonesy, you mentioned Keith Primo, and I think every Philadelphian will remember the five-overtime uh, goal that he scored. Uh, you had, what, I guess that's, that season you were averaging probably 11 minutes, right, in a game per game. And that game, I, yeah. think, I think you skated 37 minutes, right? Yep, that's true. Yeah, that's, I was on my last leg. That, that's the same year that we went to the conference finals and lost to the Devils. But in order to get there, we had to beat the Penguins. We lost the first two games at home. Uh, we had home ice advantage that dissipated in a hurry and then went to Pittsburgh and won the first game there in overtime four to three um, then set up game four which was the five overtime game and Primo scored the five overtime winner I actually was on the ice for it I was so exhausted I had turned at the far red line as he had crossed it already and was entering the offensive zone I made a beeline for the bench I never saw the goal. I only saw our bench erupt and jump nice. on the ice. And the only thing I was thinking was, oh, my God, we're going to get too many men on the ice. I was, like, <laughs> almost delirious. Right. I had no idea what, it, what had happened. And, in fact, I didn't see the goal until the next day hmm. because we hurried out of there, got on the bus, and headed back to the airport and headed home uh, to set up for game five. But um, it was an incredible experience to be a part of that. And it's something that kind of uh, – we hoped would be that uh, one moment that put us over the top and it almost propelled us to that Stanley Cup final that year. But uh, it was one of the, and it still is one of the greatest memories I've had in my career. Well, you've played with great players, not only played with them, but you played on their lines. I mean, obviously you mentioned playing with Lindros and LeClaire and you play with uh, Peter Forsberg and Dale Hunter. Um, But going to Lindros, um, you also are credited for basically saving his life, right? In a hotel room. Yeah, yeah, I always joke around saying that everybody makes mistakes. And uh, every time on the radio, and everybody gets upset with me. But it's just a joke, people. It's just a joke. Yeah, I know I was Eric's roommate, and I kind of alerted him that he needed to do more than 
you know, just ice down a body part that he was in trouble. So I kind of uh, got him to make sure he got to the hospital and got himself looked at only because I had saw that he had lost quite a bit of blood. Right. And that's, uh, that's, uh, the, the, that's really what was the story behind that. So great to see that, uh, obviously, Eric survived that. Great to see that he's back in the fold with the Flyers as well, doing some ambassador work. And uh, it's great that uh, some of those things were mended that had kind of become a distraction for everybody. And what one of the another one another former Philly Flyer that you're great friends with, obviously the Chief. We actually had the Chief uh, throughout the first pitch uh, at a game last year. Uh, it was good to see him, Craig Berube. And then Tockett, a uh, couple things. Um, talk about how Tockett brings a friend out. You're a golfer. Uh, I know you have your annual um, your golf event, right? Uh, always every yep. that's at White Manor. Is that right? Um, uh, White Clay Creek White, Country Club. White Clay Creek. Park. You're right. So, but you one time Tockett brought a friend out, and you made a unique bet with that guy on the golf course. Yeah, Al Morgani and I were golfing with Talk. Actually, Justin Williams was on a different hole and came over and and witnessed this. I I couldn't hit a drive all day. And this guy was just crushing me, and he was giving it to me, and it was pretty funny, actually. And then finally, about the 13th hole, I said, uh, all right, buddy. I said, I'll, I'll bet you every hole from here on in, 1000 bucks a hole, and I'll play every shot with my puck. And he's like, yeah, great. Perfect. So I got up on the tee and uh, teed up the ball, dropped my putter, and I wound up and smacked it 250 yards down the middle of the fairway and looked over at him and his eyes were like, oh, uh-oh. <laughs> and for the first time that day, I hit a fairway with a drive. And for the first time, when he got up to hit his tee shot, he sliced it into the woods. And he had uh, proceeded to choke that hole as I rolled my next shot up to the green. And there you go got my first par of the day on that par four and then continued on to the next pole, which was a par three over water. And I hit my shot with my putter had the ball teed up nice and high, uh, about 125 yards and landed it on the edge of the green. Uh, he popped his into the water and I beat him on that hole and continued to beat him on the next three holes after that. And for a, a guy that had not won a single hole on the day, I ended up winning the last five and taking him for five grand, which I allowed him to keep and just made him buy a dinner after. But it was you got in his a head. pretty <laughs> funny. It was a funny uh, moment. And when I look back on it, it was pretty crazy that it actually happened. And the fact that Al Morgani was there to witness that he still talks about it. <laughs> there is a little extra part. There is a little extra part to that story where, when I hit the first drive, I shook my leg and farted really loudly, <laughs> and it was a, an incredible moment. And thankfully, it was only it, it was only a fart. Otherwise, I would have had a tough time finishing the last four holes. <laughs> well, then then Tockett was uh, had to speak at some speaking engagement. This is another you know another episode, but you're, he was uh, going to speak, and didn't you? Uh, place a fart machine underneath, like somewhere near the microphone. So when he got up there, you were like hitting the remote control. Yeah, that, that's, that's true. But I had spoken before him, right. and I had told an old fart joke, <laughs> and talk was the subject of it. And that's why it all tied in. So then when he got up to do you know his joke, it was a roast back in the day, Flyers roast. But when he got back up to speak, 
uh, every time I he he spoke, I would hit that fart machine, and by the end of it, he wanted to, he wanted to kill me. Uh, it, and it was only because it tied in so beautifully to the jokes that I had told about him just prior to him getting up there. All right, Joe. We're going to wrap up a little bit. I, we do have a quick quiz for you, which I don't know if we we didn't. We always like to surprise our guests, but before we do that, uh, you had a big, elaborate press conference when you retired, right? Talk about the big. Uh, you know, the very uh, <laughs> verbose speech that Bobby Clark made on your behalf when you retired. Uh, it's just like I'm going to end this show, Johnny. <laughs> Jonesy's done. That's what he said. Starkey got up. The first words out of his mouth was Jonesy's done. <laughs> and great. I looked over at him and I said, that kind of sums it up, folks. Let's get out of here. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, Jonesy, we're going to do a real quick quiz. Eight questions, multiple choice. We're going to go through this real quick. Uh, we always say that if you get six out of eight, Tom, what, is, what does Jonesy win? Something fanatic-related. Uh, fanatic-related. Well, uh, we, we'll bring him to a Phillies game, and I remember a long time, just as an aside, Jonesy, remember like back, I think it was when the ballpark just opened, uh, this is before cell phones and the internet, you made, you made me stick around at the end of the games because there'd be an, the out-of-town scoreboard would still be up, and... You know, you you had yeah, the bets were in. You had something on oh, the yeah. Blue Jays or somebody <laughs> like Brazier. You're not going anywhere. We, we still have two more innings left in the Angels Blue Jays game. <laughs> oh yeah, I was a I was ahead of my time. Now it's everywhere, right? Now exactly. now it's on your phone. Yep. And he did I sell corn a, at a game. We said corn boy. He, he did one game. We set up through Aramark and Jonesy sold corn beyond, like out on left field Ashburn Alley. So, all right, Jonesy, are you ready? This is all about your life, so you'll be good. Here we go. Question one, you're from Brantford, Ontario, as we mentioned. Which of these celebrities is not from Brantford? So three of these are, one's not. Alexander Graham Bell, Wayne Gretzky, Jay Silverheels, who played Tondo on the Lone Ranger show, or Larry Fine from the Three Stooges? Larry Fine. <laughs> Larry Fine is correct. You were one for one. He's not from right. Ontario? You went to Western Michigan. He's actually from Philadelphia. Yeah. You went to Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Which of these celebrities did not go to Western Michigan? Singer Luther Vandross, rocker Vince Fernier, better known as Alice Cooper, actor-comedian Tim Allen from Home Improvement, or actor and former football player Terry Crews, who's in Everybody Hates Chris, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So is it Luther? The second one. Alice the Cooper is correct. One. You're Alice two for Cooper two. Did, not did you know those other guys went? Of course. All right. Uh, you played ice hockey at Western Michigan, as we mentioned. Which one was not a teammate of yours in your freshman season, 1985-86. Three of these guys were a teammate from on Western Michigan. One was not. A, Paul Palillo, Ron Hoover, Scott Corrigan, Bill Horn. Scott Corrigan. Yeah, Scott Corrigan was my line mate for 10 years in hockey. So, yes, that is correct. Three for three. He's All right. Fire. In the movie Slapshot, many of the actors were pro hockey players from a team in the now-defunct North American Hockey League. Right, they, including the Hanson brothers. Which team were the Chiefs modeled after? Is it the Johnstown Jets, Erie Blades, Mohawk Valley Comets, or Philadelphia Firebirds? Give me that again. 
Johnstown Jets, Erie Blades, Mohawk Valley Comets, or Philadelphia Firebirds? I'm going to say the Erie Blades. Ooh, close. Johnstown Jets. Uh, by the way, happy 45th anniversary. Uh, Slapshot came oh, out 45 yes, years ago. Yesterday, I think. Uh, greatest movie of all time, Jonesy. By I like Goon better. Ah, <laughs> uh, Goon. Huh? Have you seen it? No. no. Oh yeah, watch it tonight, and you'll thank me forever. <laughs> all right, Goon by Chris. Recommended Steve by Jonesy. Steve Schreiber's in it. He's unbelievable. All right. You'll love it. All right. You're one for four. Here's question five real quick. 73, Secretariat. I know you're a big horse guy. Uh, we didn't even talk about your mini donkeys. In 73, Secretariat uh, set the fastest record time at the Kentucky Derby. Whose record did Secretariat beat? Was it Decidedly, Northern Dancer, Proud Clarion, or Forward Pass? Uh, I guess I'll go with Northern Dancer. Northern Dancer's correct. Way. You are correct. You're on a roll. Yeah, he is. Question number six. I know you must have been a Toronto Blue Jays fan growing up. Um, and you play uh, it, when the Blue Jays played the Phillies in game six of the World Series. It's the one where Joe Carter hits, a, unfortunately, the home run that ruined every person in Philadelphia's life. Uh, Touch who, them all, Joe. Touch them all. Who, uh, who was the starting pitcher brutal. of that game for the Blue Jays? Was it Danny Cox, Pat Henkin, Dave Stewart, or Juan Guzman? You can have a lifeline to Tom Burgoyne, by the way. He doesn't know these. He doesn't know these questions. Give it to me again. Danny Cox, Pat Henkin, Dave Stewart, or Juan Guzman? And again, you can use Burgoyne as a lifeline. He he does not know these. Dave Stewart. Dave Stewart. You don't need a lifeline because you Man. got that right. All right, two more questions. Uh, who has the most all-time penalty minutes in the NHL with 3,917? Do you need the? Uh, do you know the answer? Or do you want me to go through the uh, four choices? I know Barubi's up there, but go ahead. All right, Tiger Williams, Dale Hunter, Ty Domi, Marty McSorley, and they're all in the three. They're all in the three thousand. No, they're all in the three thousand. Yeah, I'm gonna. Uh, I'll go with Tiger. Williams. Tiger Williams is correct, oh. Jonesy. You're on a roll. You've already qualified you for qualified. whatever you won. And the last <laughs> one, the last one is uh, we mentioned you saved Eric Lindros's life, and now he's an ambassador for the Flyers. What is Eric Lindros's middle name? Huh? I don't know if you know that one. Is it Ralph, Herman, Carl, or Brian? It's Carl. No, that's a, I, I threw you off there. That's his dad's name, but his middle name is Brian. <laughs> but you still well, you, you still qualified. You won the prize, so you get a free Phillies tickets and a dance with the fanatic and anything else <laughs> you, you want, go. Phillies related. I got uh, Phillies season opener. Is that what I have? Yep, you're in. Awesome. Jonesy, <laughs> thanks for uh, joining the podcast. We uh, love talking to you and uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Anytime, guys. Good to catch up with you. Take All right, care. Jonesy. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. The great, great Keith Jones. I, you know, I could have – there's so many stories with Jonesy. He came down to spring training with four of his buddies yeah. from Ontario. This is probably 15, 20 years ago. He comes down, and those guys – I've heard stories. They, they, yeah. they, four guys, they had like three cases of beer, and Jonesy, you know, wasn't really drinking that much at that point. But those guys, like – polished the case, all yeah, three yeah. cases off and still functioning somehow. He has one guy who's a satellite guy, you know, he's one yeah. guy who paint, who, come, who brings down to Philadelphia to paint his fence and uh, what a true character. I mean, I a total character. And, and you know what? He did it the right way. 
right in his playing career. Now, granted, his career in the the Flyers was not that long, right? No, three not, years, three seasons. Yeah, it's not like he had the storied career. No. But what he did, you know, that I think a lot of former athletes should take note, that right when he was done, and I was I was reading somewhere that when he went to Western Michigan, he took a communication, he was going to be a communications major, and he was scared to death to get up, uh, I guess they had to do a pretend you're a TV anchor, and he said he left. He, he was too scared to do that. Isn't that funny? And now that's what he does for a living. Um, that's hard to believe because I think he's excellent in front of the camera. I mean, he doesn't um and ah, uh, you know, it, he's very uh, articulate. But I'm saying know? sometimes, you know, you, you you find your path just powering yeah. through certain things. And he was always the instigator. He was, you know, yeah. he, he basically got, you know, he mentioned that sometimes yeah. you got to find your way. Yes. He got in as a, you know, his way of getting there was, was a scrapper and instigator and, you know, and, and he was tough and he wasn't a huge guy. No. But anyway, he played it right in the sense that he, his career is over. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I think it was, his knee was shot. He couldn't go any longer. Well, he starts going on WIP for free. You know, he would go on there for for all morning and, and go on there. I know because I was on in, on the shows with him, mm-hmm. and he'd go in there for free and light it up. And light, he's so funny, yes, really you know. funny. He was able to really show his personality. And next thing you know, what does that bring? That brings a local Flyers job. That brings a national NBC job. Now TNT job. Now the Olympics. He's I mean, he, he's become like the the Really, the big when you think of a national broadcaster, yeah. you know, it was Mike Emmerich, and you know now kind of Jonesy's right up there with Ed Alchick and as an analyst, a bunch no of question. other guys, right? Yeah. So it's he played it right though by again getting in the ground floor and doing yeah. whatever job he would do, doing it well and creating a name. And I think it's funny watching him sometimes on the national broadcast because he's more serious, like right. he's serious, like and he's a great. He can analyze the game like nobody you know i mean he's he's awesome but i'm waiting for him to you know crack jokes i mean when you listen to him wip he can't not joke every time he opens <laughs> right, his right, mouth right, you right. know it's hilarious you know but uh he knows how to analyze the game and his first shift uh supposedly the first nhl shift yeah he uh someone elbowed him and <laughs> he broke a tooth right Is that uh, right yeah. yeah and how about this one for a stat too 20 percent of his goals mm. of his career goals right in the nhl 20 percent uh were game-winning goals is that right? Twenty, and then now wow. a lot of that's just kind of just luck of the draw. Luck of the draw, but yeah. a lot of that is you sure. know being Clutch. the being Clutch a player. gamer. Yeah, yeah. So and again, we mentioned that all the star players he's played with. Yeah. But uh, I mean, talk about a guy who's what a storybook career, right? Yeah. And he, and you, Larry Bow is actually a perfect analogy, mm-hmm. right? Because Larry Bow, the same thing. Like he, it was through not his stature or his ability it was basically his will that got him to the major leagues he didn't he got cut from his high school baseball team jonesy same thing here's a guy that's yep. 19 years old at that point you know when you're playing junior b you're pretty much you're, you're no longer a prospect it's almost like being a 26 year old guy in double a yeah you know you're, you're pretty much past your prime and he caught a break and next thing you know he, he and, found and, a way and found a will and especially did. in hockey you got to be tough because he he was a guy who'd stand in front of the net you know, you always think of the Gary Dornhoffers or Tim Kerr's right. or, you know, the big, you know, Don Seleski's, these big mountain guys. And he'd, he'd be one of those guys who, you know, guys would try to clear him and he would just stick his face in there. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, we're on a roll, John. It's, you know, it's, it's cool to uh, interview some of the uh, personalities, players from other sports, you know, and they all have this tie to Philadelphia. Uh, they all, we didn't get into, I mean, he, you mentioned down to bat. He'd come over to games all the time. All the time. You know, so uh, it's great. We have a great sports community here. The greatest in the world, John. That's right. Philadelphia. 
And now we're going to have to top, you know, Jonesy. Who's <laughs> gonna, know. Who, who are we going to get that's going to top that? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. We'll find somebody. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, hey, everybody, thanks for uh, tuning in. Another fun time, John. Hey. 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 There you go. <laughs> and uh, we will see you next time on Philly's Backstage.